Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi there, it's Alan Cross, and for the next few weeks of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, we're going back to revisit a series we did a little while ago called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is a 10-part series, and it explored a lot of topics, with each episode dealing with a particular brand of weirdness. Sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, excess, road stories, bad behavior, and more. There's a lot that goes into the music that we don't always hear about, despite what you may hear on the internet. So it's kind of like my job to fill you in. You ready for some weirdness? Okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. If you're listening to this show, you are a music fan. Any arguments with that statement? I didn't think so. Fan is short for fanatic a person who is extremely passionate and enthusiastic about something. It could be sports, it could be movies, it could be music. And fans tend to be reasonably uncritical about the objects of their affection. But all fanaticism, and we're using the proper dictionary terms here, is not the same. We can go from being a casual fan of something to being a devotee. But then after that, fan may give away to the negative connotations of fanatic, all the way up to zealot and militant. This is where things get unbalanced, obsessive, and dangerous. Now, if you're a public figure, let's say, uh, oh, I don't know, a famous musician, your whole goal is to attract fans. Your whole life is about finding people who really, really, really like what you do. The problem is, however, that with the good comes the weirdos. And this is where things can get very, very strange. This is part three of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. It's 10 tales of fans, stalkers, and the downright crazy. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're working our way through 100 of the weirdest things that you will ever hear from the world of new rock and alternative music. Now, we're not saying that these are the weirdest things ever, because weird, of course, is in the ear of the beholder, but what you're about to hear will certainly make you look at your radio and go, what? This episode is all about fans and the extreme and sometimes dangerous lengths certain people have gone to be close to their favorite performers. We're going to begin with something reasonably harmless. And I say reasonably harmless only because in comparison to the things that we're going to talk about, this one is mild. It has to do with the comparative sizes of various rock star units, if you know what I'm talking about. You know what? This is not gossip. Think of it as uh, sharing intelligence. The concept of the rock and roll groupie is as old as music itself. And it really began to get interesting in about 1968 with the emergence of a Chicago woman named Cynthia Albritton. In high school, her art teacher gave the class an assignment. Take some plaster and cast something solid that could retain its shape. And suddenly she was hooked. Cynthia carved out a name for herself as a unique collector of a particular type of rock memorabilia. Her thing was getting plaster casts of rock star penises. She would ask, and if they allow it, she would take a mold of an attentive member, and, uh, well, this is why we now call her by her professional name, which is Cynthia Plastercaster. 
Her collection includes Jimi Hendrix, Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys, and most of the band Pop Will Eat Itself. She also lists the people that she tried to cast, but who weren't, um, well, up to the task. And, to be fair, she also cast the breasts of willing women. It's actually a documentary film about her called Plaster Caster. Kiss wrote a song about her called Plaster Caster on their Love Gun album. And she continues to hold exhibitions of her works in art galleries. In fact, there's a rather elaborate website that uses Flash in um, an interesting way. Check out www.cynthiaplastercaster.com should you be so inclined to make sure there are no children in the room. And I probably wouldn't do it from a work computer, if you know what I'm saying. If you feel the need for something even more graphic, there's Donna's Domain. This is part of a website called Metal Sludge. It's a musician's review site that's been running since 1998, thanks to a big music fan named Donna Anderson. It rates stars by uh, size and ability. And names are named, almost 200 of them, all courtesy of groupies, ex-lovers, and the like. And they're very, very candid. Gavin Rossdale, the current Mr. Gwen Stefani, is apparently a very good kisser. Well, Lars from Metallica does not fare very well in terms of the ability to perform when required. Surge of System of a Down is, uh, well, I'll just read you the quote. Reports are that Surge is a total sweetie despite looking like a freak. Gentle in bed. Makes you feel like he actually is making love to you, although not much concern for whether or not you have an orgasm. Condom user and good for a few times in one session. Oh, and Trent Reznor? Well, he ranks an 8 out of 10 and is known to be fond of props, various battery-operated devices, and hot wax. You're welcome. Groupies collect rock stars by having sex with them. However, not everyone's interests lie in that particular direction. Some people literally want a piece of their favorite performer. eBay is a fascinating place to troll for this kind of stuff. For example, one Radiohead fan somehow managed to collect a pile of Tom York's toenail clippings. Found them in a dressing room somewhere and put them up for sale on eBay, and somebody bought them too. But eBay can be a little hit and miss for those looking to own some DNA of their favorite performer. This is why you may want to know about a company called Celebrity Skin and Body Fluids. Now, Celebrity Skin and Body Fluids was founded by an anonymous group of former personal assistants in Hollywood who all have had or have access to their boss's inner sanctums. A quick browse through their musical inventory might turn up such things as the personal bacteria of Jane's addiction guitarist and rock star supernova dude Dave Navarro. You can have some at $5.75 a batch. Now, they also had some bacteria from Michael Stipe of REM, but uh, it's, um, it's, it's sold out. They did, however, have availability on dead skin cells from Michael for the low, low price of $12.75. But for the real fan, you may wish to invest in some fecal matter. Take flea from the Chili Peppers. You can get a cubic inch or so of genuine flea poop for $27. But if you're a Smashing Pumpkins fan, Billy Corgan poop will run you 30 bucks. Maybe he really is anal attentive. There's a shortage. Why would anyone want any of this stuff? It's beyond me. Unless, of course, you were engaged in some kind of weird cloning experiment, but... Uh... 
Hey, talk about a unique gift for the music fan in your life, huh? Zero from the Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corgan Fecal Matter, available for sale to the diehard fan from a company called Celebrity Skin and Body Fluids. Better hurry before it's sold out. Okay, now that's that's weird and disturbing. But when we come back, we'll look at fans who are threats to the stars and to themselves. Weird note number three coming up. Welcome back to part three of a series called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. And we're looking at 10 incidents involving fans and stalkers and weirdos. Now, just about anybody who's been to a concert will know that some people just lose it. And items number three and four on this list are examples of, of just that. This is a story about Lou Reed. Now, you got to figure if you were a member of the Velvet Underground and if you were the kind of artist that circulated in the New York Underground community, you're definitely going to come across some weirdos. But one of Lou's strangest encounters didn't happen in New York City. It happened in Buffalo. On March the 24th, 1973, Lou was playing a concert, and midway through the set, a fan jumped out of the audience, screamed, Leather! And then bit Lou on the bum. The guy was grabbed by security and thrown out, but Lou had to play the rest of the show with a rather tender butt. Lou has some definite thoughts about some of the people he's encountered over the years, and some of them ended up on a live album in 1978. This was recorded at the Bottom Line Club in New York City. Let's, let's listen in. Saturday night, man, what do you want? Uh, um, watch me turn into Louie before you have every eyes. Uh. I do Louie better than anybody. I thought I'd get in on it. This is rather mild, and the bum-biting incident is nothing compared to the fan that needed to make a public statement during a Cure concert. The date was July the 27th of 1986, and the Cure was playing a show in Los Angeles. Everything was going great. And then John Moreland, one of the 18,000 people in the audience that night, was, um, he wasn't having such a good time. See, John had just broken up with his girlfriend and was really, really depressed, but he was determined to show her that he still really cared, despite everything that she had said. And he was going to show her that he cared, even if it was the last thing he did. So, in what was supposed to be, we assume, some final grand gesture, John jumped up on the stage during the show, pulled out a knife, and began stabbing himself. Now, the cure didn't know what to think. A crowd thought it was part of the show, so they cheered him on. Security grabbed John before he could do any serious damage, and he lived sure to freak out the band. The Cure, who once saw a fan try to stab himself to death right in front of them on stage in the middle of a show. Now that's pretty fanatical. And so is this. In 1987, a young man walked into a Denver radio station and demanded, at gunpoint, that the radio station stop playing that boring mainstream rock music and start playing something more meaningful, stuff by the Smiths. Again, this was some kind of doomed, romantic, idealistic gesture. This guy, with his gun, took over the control room of the radio station for four solid hours. 
And during that time, it was all Smiths all the time. Then the SWAT team moved in, and the negotiator was able to talk the dude into giving up. And yes, this is one of the songs that was played. The Smiths, the band that prompted a young man to storm a Denver radio station with a gun and forced the radio station to play his favorite music, his favorite band, the Smiths, until he was threatened with death himself by the local SWAT team. Now, that's weird and that's scary, but not as scary as the kind of things that we're going to look at next. Stories of stalkers and assassins coming up. Have you ever had someone who just wouldn't leave you alone? Someone who followed you and kept calling you and kept emailing or sending you stuff you didn't want? Well, if that's the case, you have been stalked. And here's a scary statistic. According to professionals who study this stuff, 8% of all women and 2% of all men will be stalked at some point in their lives. There are three types of stalkers. The first is called the intimates, former partners that can't believe that the relationship is over. Then there's the delusional people who usually suffer from some kind of mental illness and believe that they need to be in contact with the target of their obsession for whatever reason. And finally, there's the vengefuls, people who believe that they've been wronged and are out to get someone. That stat I just mentioned, 8% of women and 2% of men, applies to regular, everyday folk. If you're famous, well, then those numbers go up substantially and things can get very, very weird and very, very scary. Weird story number five has to do with the fan that stole the identity of Lincoln Park's Chester Bennington. It all began with a cell phone hack late in the winter of 2006. Chester's wife, Talinda, began getting weird and scary phone calls and text messages at all hours of the day and night. Friends listed in the phone's address book also started getting calls. They seemed to come from someone at a Yahoo address called informant for You. Then, Talinda was locked out of her eBay account, and then she lost her PayPal privileges. This was too much, so she and Chester decided to contact an ex-Secret Service dude who specialized in tracking down identity thieves. Meanwhile, Chester installed a high-tech security system, hired some bodyguards, and bought a dog. After some serious sleuthing, this guy that they hired tracked down the hacker to, get this, a nuclear weapons research facility in New Mexico. Digging deeper, this guy was led to a 27-year-old single mom named Devin Townsend, who lived in Albuquerque. She worked as a technologist in the lab at the research facility. Townsend's cyber-stalking began when she discovered Chester's email address in a mass email that was accidentally sent out as part of a big message plugging a tattoo parlor that Chester co-owns in Tempe, Arizona. She used Chester's birthday and zip code to find Chester's .Mac account. Once she found that, she just started guessing at passwords. It didn't take her long to crack everything because when she entered Charlie, which is Chester's middle name, she was in. And this is how it started. Email addresses, photos, street addresses, even things like social security numbers and cell phone accounts. So, so why did she do it? Well, number one, she was a fan. And number two, she was bored at her job. And after finishing her work each day, she had some super high-powered computers at her disposal. Townsend had so much access to the Bennington's private life that she could have literally sucked all their money out of their bank accounts. But fortunately for Chester and Talinda, she did not. 
Townsend was arrested and charged with a variety of offenses. Like Chester Bennington, Eddie Vedder has had to deal with a very determined fan, except that this fan was definitely mentally ill. It was a long-term situation that was at its weirdest between 1994 and 1996. A woman had decided that all the songs Eddie had written for Pearl Jam were actually about her. She also believed that Jesus was the father of her two children and that both kids were the product of rape. And because Eddie was actually Jesus... You can see where this is going. So physical threats were made towards Eddie. Fences had to be erected. Security systems were installed. Bodyguards were hired 24 hours a day. The works. Rumors were that this woman had a gun. But then after this woman drove her car at 50 miles an hour right into Eddie's house, he decided that it was time to move away from his home in Seattle to someplace more inaccessible outside the city. Yes, there were legal proceedings, but little came of them. All of this was kept pretty quiet, but in the meantime, Eddie ended up with this reputation as a recluse and a hermit. But now you know why. And now you know what Eddie is talking about in this particular song. It's from the No Code album in 1996. Have a listen, and you'll get an idea of what Eddie was going through with his stalker at the time. Pearl Jam and a track called Lucan from 1996, inspired by Eddie Vedder's dangerously crazy stalker. This woman, whatever her name is, is still alive and living somewhere in the Washington state area, but apparently she is leaving Eddie alone. And Eddie is far from alone when it comes to psychotic obsessed fans. Chris Cornell, ex-audio slave and ex-soundgarden, had some pretty scary situations that started in 2004 when Chris's wife Vicky was six months pregnant with Tony, the couple's first child. The threats usually came in the form of email or letters, and eventually they ended up outlining in very explicit detail how Vicky and the children, Tony, who was three, and Christopher Jr., who had come along, was just one at the time, how they would be killed. And it was obvious that the writer or writers of these messages knew exactly where Chris and Vicky lived in Beverly Hills. You got this nice $8 million mansion. And the messages would say things like, you stole my baby and now the baby must die. Chris spent more than a million dollars on security, fences, more than 40 closed-circuit video cameras, alarms, 24-hour guards, the whole works. Soundgarden, featuring the psycho-besieged Chris Cornell. That's a rough situation, but it seems to be under control. On the other hand, it's quite possible that Bjork, everyone's favorite eccentric Icelander, is still around simply because of blind luck. On September the 17th of 1996, Scotland Yard intercepted a package at a South London post office that was addressed to her London home. Inside was a booby-trapped, hollowed-out book designed to spray sulfuric acid in the face of whomever opened it. The parcel had been sent from Hollywood, Florida by a 21-year-old guy named Ricardo Lopez, a former pest control worker from Atlanta. 
Lopez had been obsessed with Bjork for months. He had photos of her plastered everywhere in his apartment. But he was very upset that Bjork had been dating a series of black men, such as Goldie, the actor-slash-DJ. And to Lopez, this was totally unacceptable. Bjork had to be punished. He tracked Bjork gossip for nine months, documenting his obsession on videotape. And watching them, you can see this guy losing his mind. Two of them were at least 11 hours long, and one of them showed him constructing the acid bomb. On a tape dated September the 12th of 1996, Lopez explained what he was going to do and held up a package for the camera. I'm going to send her a package, he raved. I'm just going to have to kill her. His mission? To send her to hell. The book was loaded, armed, and gift-wrapped. After a trip to the post office, Ricardo sat down in front of the camera, shaved his head, painted his nipples red, painted his lips black, and his face red and green. Lopez actually looked a lot like Marlon Brando's Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Then, sitting completely naked, with this Bjork song playing in the background, he pulled out a 38 caliber pistol. And right there, on camera, at exactly 2.53 in the afternoon of September the 12th, he stuck it in his mouth and pulled the trigger. So, how did Bjork escape being injured by a sulfuric acid-laced bomb? Well, by sheer fluke, cops got to the booby trap package before it was delivered, and here's how. Florida cops found Ricardo Lopez's body on September the 16th, four days after he shot himself. And when the CSI team moved in, they began going through all the videotapes in the room. And when they watched the video that showed his suicide, which was the one helpfully labeled Ricardo Lopez last day, They saw him hold up the package to the camera, and he held it up there just long enough for the cops to get the address. They traced the package through the mail and found it in that South London post office, just before it was about to be delivered to Bjork's house. In 2000, a filmmaker named Sami Saif released a documentary called The Video Diary of Ricardo Lopez. It's some of the most chilling stuff that you will ever see. Here's a clip from that documentary. I want to be the biggest influence on her life, the, the, the most important person who changed her life more than anybody else, okay? The guy who took her life, okay? I am the angel of death for her. He's very hostile toward her. There's a hatred for her. There's a desire to torture her. By killing her, ironically, he can recreate in his mind an idealized image of her and then be with her. Our tenth and final Weirdo fan story has to do with the time Bono was threatened with assassination. U2 has always been known for their human rights activism. Most people appreciate what they're trying to do and the message that they're trying to deliver. Most people. Some, however, don't appreciate U2's positions, especially those taken by Bono. So for him, the prospect of assassination has been quite real. Let's begin with rumors that Bono was on an IRA hit list for an anti-IRA speech he made from the stage in Denver on November the 8th of 1987. See, earlier in the day, 13 people were killed by an IRA bomb during a Remembrance Day parade. Then, on a 1992 tour, a serious assassination threat came via the FBI. U2 had been long outspoken supporters of the adoption of a national holiday honoring Martin Luther King. There were, however, some politicians who refused, including Arizona Governor Ed Meacham. 
The threat seemed to indicate that Bono would be shot the next time they played Arizona. That was scheduled for October the 24th, 1992 at Sun Devil Stadium in Tempe. And if it was going to happen, it was probably going to happen right during Pride in the Name of Love, which of course is all about Dr. King's assassination in April of 1968. This is what the threat said. In fact, the FBI took the threat so seriously that they advised U2 not to play the gig. When U2 refused, the FBI suggested that they simply drop Pride from the set. But Bono was against doing that, too. He insisted that they do it regardless of the threat. So they did it. But Bono sang the whole thing with his eyes closed, trying to concentrate on the lyrics. And when the song finished, he was still alive. He opened his eyes to see Adam Clayton standing right in front of him, ready to take any kind of assassin's role. The assassination threats against Bono and U2 are tenth and final bit of weirdness when it comes to fans and stalkers. Performers can be weird, but their fans can be weirder or even dangerous. I guess it's just one of those things that come with the territory. But living as a rock star isn't exactly a normal way of life, especially considering the amount of time that you spend away from home. The road can be an exceedingly strange place. Which is why part four of this series will look at ten of the weirdest things that have ever happened on the road. That's next time on 100 Weird Things About New Rock. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.